0: Book the Fifth, Part Thirteen, of A Laodicean by Thomas Hardy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Book the Fifth, Part Thirteen. return to Charlotte de Stancy. When the train had borne Somerset from her side, and she had regained her self-possession, she became conscious of the true proportions of the fact he had asserted. And, further, if the telegram had not been his, why should the photographic distortion be trusted as a phase of his existence? But after a while it seemed so improbable to her that God's son should bear false witness, that instead of doubting both evidences, she was inclined to readmit the first. Still, upon the whole, she could not question for long the honesty of Somerset's denial, and if that message had indeed been sent by him, it must have been done while he was in another such an unhappy state as that exemplified by the portrait. The supposition reconciled all differences, and yet she could not but fight against it with all the strength of a generous affection. All the afternoon her poor little head was busy on this perturbing question, till she inquired of herself whether after all it might not be possible for photographs to represent people as they had never been. Before rejecting the hypothesis, she determined to have the word of a professor on the point, which would be better than all her surmises. Returning to Markton early, she told the coachman whom Paula had sent to drive her to the shop of Mr Ray, an obscure photographic artist in that town, instead of straight home. Ray's establishment consisted of two divisions, the respectable and the shabby. If, on entering the door, the visitor turned to the left, he found himself in a magazine of old clothes, old furniture, china, umbrellas, guns, fishing rods, dirty fiddles and split flutes. Entering the right-hand room, which had originally been that of an independent house, he was in an ordinary photographer's and print collector's depository, to which a certain artistic solidity was imparted by a few oil paintings in the background. Charlotte made for the latter department, and when she was inside Mr Ray appeared in person from the lumber shop adjoining, which, despite its manginess, contributed by far the greater share to his income. Charlotte put her question simply enough. The man did not answer her directly, but soon found that she meant no harm to him. He told her that such misrepresentations were quite possible, and that they embodied a form of humour which was getting more and more into vogue among certain facetious persons of society. Charlotte was coming away when she asked, as on second thoughts, if he had any specimens of such work to show her. "'None of my own preparation,' said Mr Ray, with unimpeachable probity of turn." I consider them libelous myself. Still, I have one or two samples by me which I keep merely as curiosities. There's one, he said, throwing out a portrait card from a drawer. That represents the German emperor in a violent passion. This one shows the Prime Minister out of his mind. This, the Pope of Rome, the worse for liquor. He inquired if he had any local specimens. Yes, he said but I prefer not to exhibit them unless you really ask for a particular one that you mean to buy. I don't want any. Oh, I beg pardon this. Well, I shouldn't myself own such things were produced if there had not been a young man here at one time who was very ingenious in these matters, a Mr. Dare. He was quite a gent and only did it as an amusement and not for the sake of getting a living. Charlotte had no wish to hear more. On her way home she burst into tears. The entanglement was altogether too much for her to tear asunder, even had not her own instincts been urging her two ways as they were. To immediately right Somerset's wrong was her impetuous desire as an honest woman who loved him. But such rectification would be the jeopardising of all else that gratified her, the marriage of her brother with her dearest friend, now on the very point of accomplishment. It was a marriage which seemed to promise happiness, or at least comfort, if the old flutter that had transiently disturbed Paula's bosom could be kept from reviving, to which end it became imperative to hide from her the discovery of injustice to Somerset. It involved the advantage of leaving Somerset free, and though her own tender interest in him had been too well schooled by habitual self-denial to run ahead on vain personal hopes, there was nothing more than human in her feeling pleasure in prolonging Somerset's singleness. Paula might even be allowed to discover his wrongs when her marriage had put him out of her power. But to let her discover his ill-treatment now might upset the impending union of the families and wring her own heart with the sight of Somerset married in her brother's place. Why, dare, or any other person should have set himself to advance her brother's cause by such unscrupulous blackening of Somerset's character more than her sagacity could fathom. Her brother was, as far as she could see, the only man who could directly profit by the machination, and was therefore the natural one to suspect of having set it going. But she would not be so disloyal as to entertain the thought long. And who or what had instigated Dare, who was undoubtedly the proximate cause of the mischief, remained to her an inscrutable mystery. The contention of interests and desires with honour in her heart shook Charlotte all that night, but good principle prevailed. The wedding was to be solemnised the very next morning, though for before-mentioned reasons this was hardly known outside the two houses interested, and there were no visible preparations either at villa or castle. The Stancy and his groomsman, a brother officer, slept at the former residence, Constancey was a sorry specimen of a bridegroom when he met his sister in the morning. Thick-coming fancies, for which was more than good reason, had disturbed him only too successfully, and he was as full of apprehension as one who has a league with Mephistopheles. Charlotte told him nothing of what made her likewise so warm and anxious, but drove off to the castle, as had been planned, about nine o'clock, leaving her brother and his friend at the breakfast-table. That clearing Somerset's reputation from the stain which had been thrown on it would cause a sufficient reaction in Paula's mind to, to dislocate present arrangements, she did not so seriously anticipate, now that morning had a little calmed her. Since the rupture with her former architect, Paula had sedulously kept her own counsel. But Charlotte assumed from the ease with which she seemed to do it that her feelings towards him had never been inconveniently warm. And she hoped that Paula would learn of Somerset's purity with merely the generous pleasure of a friend, coupled with a friend's indignation against his producer. Still, the possibility existed of stronger emotions, and it was only too evident to poor Charlotte that, knowing this, she had still less excuse for delaying the intelligence till the strongest emotion would be purposeless. On approaching the castle, the first object that caught her eye was Dare, standing beside Havel on the scaffolding of the new wing. He was looking down upon the drive and court, as if in anticipation of the event. His contiguity flurried her, and instead of going straight to Paula, she sought out Mrs Goodman. you come early, that's right,' said the latter. "'You might as well have slept here last night. We have only Mr Wardlaw, the London lawyer you have heard of, in the house. Your brother's solicitor was here yesterday, but he returned to Markton for the night.' We miss Mr. Powers so much. It is so unfortunate that he should have been obliged to go abroad and leave us unprotected women with so much responsibility. Yes, I know, said Charlotte quickly, having a shy distaste for the details of what troubled her so much in the gross. Paula has inquired for you. What is she doing? She is in her room. She has not begun to dress yet. Will you go to her? Charlotte assented to tell her something, she said, which will make no difference, but which I should like her to know this morning at once. I have discovered that we have been entirely mistaken about Mr. Somerset. She nerved herself to relate succinctly what had come to her knowledge the day before. Mrs. Goodman was much impressed. She had never clearly heard before what circumstances had attended the resignation of Paula's architect. We had better not tell her till the wedding is over, she presently said. It would only disturb her and do no good. But would it be right? asked Mr. Stancy. Yes, it would be all right if we tell her afterwards. Oh, yes, it must be right. She repeated in a tone which showed that her opinion was unstable enough to require a little fortification by the voice. She loves your brother. She must, since she's going to marry him. And it can make little difference whether we rehabilitate the character of a friend now or some few hours hence. The author of those wicked tricks on Mr. Somerset ought not to go a moment unpunished. That's what I think, and what right have we to hold our tongues even for a few hours? Charlotte found that by telling Mrs. Goodman, she had simply made two irresolute people out of one. And as Paula was now inquiring for her, she went upstairs without having come to any decision. End of Book the Fifth Part Thirteen